0: Tonight is our 100th episode, and we are applying our patent-pending Stanley rubric to a film that needs no introduction, The Godfather, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, starring Marlon Brando, Al Pacino, James Caan, Robert Duvall, and John Cazale. However, quickly before we get to the show, next week, two middle-class white guys will attempt to appreciate Black History Month with our first of the three films celebrating black culture in America that we have coming up, Do the Right Thing. Directed by Spike Lee, starring Spike Lee, Rosie Perez, Giancarlo Esposito, John Turturro, and Samuel L. Jackson. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter, either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can also email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and now TikTok at the handle at GMote Podcast. Additionally, did you know that in the episode descriptions of every episode, we put the links to take you right there to either the notes for that specific episode or or to the full ranked and graded list of movies we've covered so far. Just open up the episode and you can find them right there to get more information on the show. Then, as we announced in the preview episode for this season, we are taking the month of March this year to do another full trilogy and you can help us decide. We have put up a Twitter poll on our profile at GMote Podcast to pick between four favorite franchises to cover this March. You can pick between the Jason Bourne Trilogy, the Austin Powers Trilogy, the Naked Gun Trilogy, or the Oceans Trilogy. If you don't have Twitter but would like to participate, please write us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com with your vote. And as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. So, we have an unusual situation. This is the second time it's happened in the course of the show. My dad got sick again this week, so because he may not be at 100% effort, but is still playing, pinch hitting, we have a familiar guest to everybody, one of our classic guest hosts, Rob Conlon. Welcome back to The Greatest Movie of All Time.
1: Hey, gentlemen, it's absolutely fantastic to be here and uh, really glad to be kind of the the helper engine on this train here. It's going to be great.
0: Well, I thought your opinions may be more valuable to this particular movie than maybe my little sister, who I don't know what she thinks about The Godfather, but frankly, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Let us start here. I've personally held that The Godfather was my prediction when we started the show to be the greatest movie of all time. I've said for a lot of years that if I were to pick one film to be the greatest movie of all time, it would be this one. It's at the top or near the top of almost everybody's list of opinions. At worst, it's probably inside the top five of almost everybody. Occasionally, you'll have some jockeying where you'll have some people that will put part two slightly ahead of it, but this one doesn't fall very far down the list. I think it's a surprise almost if it doesn't make the top five of most people's lists. It's an absolute classic that still has people glued to their TVs every time it's on. What is it about The Godfather that makes it not only a critical darling, but so widely popular? Dad, we'll start with you. Because what it
2: does is it takes a crime family and makes it into an American journey. It humanizes the people involved and creates an empathy towards them and their struggle to succeed. There's just something about... The family itself, while they may be brutal and bloodthirsty at times, it's still people who love their children, take care of their families, do the little things that most people do on an everyday basis. To me, if you've ever read Eric Larson's book, In the Garden of the Beasts, he wrote a book that humanized Nazi Germany. It made... It's made, on the shelf,
1: yeah. It's actually right yeah, it, me here. It's a good book.
2: Yeah, it made Goring and made Goebbels and all these people, instead of just being these evil villains that you saw with uh, horns and spiked teeth, showed that they had wider dimensions. And it's much easier now to understand how they permeated into culture and how they took over Germany. And you see it a lot more in how certain other people in today's world have been able to ingratiate themselves and to, um, hide their true intent and, and make themselves popular. Uh, and I think that's what it does is this movie humanizes the evil that is personified in the mafia.
1: It definitely shows that these are more than just, you know, comic book supervillains and i think that's really neat but i think it's the first time that we actually see like tropes the, the birth of tropes of the mafia don being the family man maybe talking like this and things like that this is the movie it's it's 50 years old now it is like it's 1972 to 2022 right now and every pop culture depiction of a mafia don goes right back down the family tree to Don Vito Corleone and Marlon Brando's portrayal of him and I think that's one of the things about this movie that is so lasting is that it plays through the decades because it's the source. It's very much like when you guys had me on for Alien. Alien I think is again one of those things, one of the same types of movies where it's the source of the really freaking scary monster hunting people. But back to back to the Godfather, this is the source of the the Sicilian family that is has come to America has had that story, Dana, as you mentioned, but also the all of the things that we associate with that, the competent father figure leader, the Don, his maybe either screw-off son or his uh, son who doesn't want to be in the business anymore. That's all in here. You know, the enforcers and and, and everything like that. And even the phrase, you know, uh, on the day of my daughter's wedding, I cannot refuse a favor, things like that. You look at every other Mafia Don who's been portrayed for the past 50 years, and Vito Corleone is the blueprint. I mean, even Fat Tony on The Simpsons. Come on. That's why I really think that this... This movie is very much, to your point, Tom, it can't fall outside the really the top 10. I mean, if it's like number six, that's that's totally fair. And I'm sure that there's some up and down and flex with people. But this is, this is one of the true greats. And I know, uh, I think Stanley Kubrick himself even said it is the greatest uh, out there. I think I read that when I was doing a little research for this for you guys.
0: So this will lead into my second question, but I do agree that it is primarily two things that relates to both Americana and to critics alike. One, it's somewhat of an examination of the history of the 20th century. You have primarily the top two characters. It's the rise of Don Vito and it's the fall of Michael Corleone. And similarly, you have generational stories in America where a family is raised up and becomes the peak of their community and simultaneously fails as a child to live up to the specter of those that came before them and is trying to move the family forward in this other context that they are not necessarily prepared for and unfortunately becomes their own unraveling. But at the same time, replace the mafia with any other family business. If you put this in the words of corporate culture, and I think that's why this movie is so quotable for a lot of other corporate movies or business strategies is that this very much, it's a movie that happens probably 10 years prior to the rise of Wall Street as this great bastion of corporate culture, but everything is contained within this. When he talks about the Corleones becoming legitimate, we've legitimized a lot of these practices and taken out the organized crime and just said, okay, just apply all of these lessons to current business culture. And you have to be ruthless. You have to keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. You have to make them an offer they can't refuse. You can do things by power of will. All of these things are contained within this movie. So that does lead me into my second question then, of course. If you have these two successive generations, and this becomes even more pronounced with the way Coppola puts together part two, where you have... Quite clearly, the kind of prequel nature of that half part of it with De Niro playing Don Vito as he's growing up, but then Michael as he continues to decline. What is it about these two men that could really be applied to the history of the 20th century in America? Because I think that's where this movie really resonates with the general population at large. With Vito, concept
2: that I gathered, and you can see it, is that the three sons each have a per, a portion of Vito's personality. The aggressive, violent-tempered one, the sweet but simple one, and the ruthless, calculating, cold one. And that combination of an individual is seen throughout world history, whether you look at Guys like Andrew Carnegie or John D. Rockefeller, they all had the same concept. They were great humanitarians, but just not in the businesses that they wanted to control. In those, they were ruthless, cutthroat. They would destroy people. They would destroy lives and think nothing about it because they had a central purpose. And so that's why this has some certain... Resonance because it's really when you study it and think about it is the history of making great wealth in this country,
1: yeah, definitely. And I, Dana, I think you have another great point there is that you know, you look at the Don and you see this guy who is really put together. I mean, he is the full package, but. With his three kids, his three sons in particular, all of that's piecemealed out. He's like split into into triplicate, and I'm wondering, you know, if we had look at the the Corleone family tree, there's that saying, of course, that uh, you know the first generation builds wealth, the second generation maintains wealth, and the third generation, which they tend to lose it. And I think that that is really something about this movie that that maybe isn't quite seen on the surface, but I think that it's almost a natural progression that we see here. And, and we also see it in more modern versions of this, you know, succession on HBO where gosh, what is his name? It's not Rip Torn. It's uh who's, who's the the lead head honcho on that. Oh, Logan, I uh,
0: yeah. I can't remember the name, but
1: either way, the, the really gruff looking guy who talks like this, uh, he's the, he's an, an analogous to Vito Corleone and his kids played by Kieran Culkin. And, and the rest of those guys are just screw offs because he's held the, he's held the thing together and he's taught them what sort of reflects to their personalities. And yes, you have the ruthless one, you have the clueless one and you have the, the one that is, uh, you know, the charismatic or whatever it might be. And I think that that kind of repeat, if you will, goes throughout not only television history, but also, you know, you look at Dana, as you said, history, history, you've had emperors and Kings who have had multiple children who, the one, you know, the ugly guy's got the 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 battle tactics and things like that, whereas the the handsome uh, handsome young one is is not, you know, interested in ruling at all. I, I'm made to think of, uh, you know, the the Romanovs in uh, Tsarist Russia. With that, is that you know, Alexei was a playboy, and and I think you really get into the family structure with the Godfather that has just repeated itself all throughout history.
0: Brian Cox was the name you were looking for. Thank you. All right, before we get too much further, Dad, do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. In 1945,
2: Vito Corleone, Marlon Brando, the head of the Corleone crime family in New York, sits at a a major turning point for organized crime in America as they determine whether to get involved in the narcotic drug trade. After a mob war breaks out, Vito's sons, Sonny, James Kahn, Tom Hagen, Robert Duvall, Fredo, John Gazelle, and Michael Al Pacino are all thrust into the center of the family business to see which one of them will evolve the family business into the next era of the American Mafia.
0: Thank you. Cast for this movie, Francis Ford Coppola as director, Marlon Brando as Vito Corleone, Al Pacino as Michael, James Caan as Sonny, Richard Castellano as Clemenza, Robert Duvall as Tom Hagen, Sterling Hayden as Captain McCluskey, John Marley as Jack Waltz, Richard Conti as Barsini, Al Lettari as Salazzo, Diane Keaton as Kay Adams, Abe Vigoda as Tessio, Talia Shire as Connie, Gianni Russo as Carlo, John Cazale as Fredo, and Al Martino as Johnny Fontaine. Recognition for this movie. The Godfather was a blockbuster breaking many box office records to become the highest-grossing film of 1972. After 18 weeks at number one in the United States, it was the second film to gross $100 million in North America behind The Sound of Music in 1965. It remained at number one in the U.S. for another five weeks to bring its total to 23 consecutive weeks at number one before being unseated by Butterflies Are Free for one week before becoming number one for another three weeks. I mean, that has to be a trivia question right there. What movie temporarily unseated The Godfather from being number one? Butterflies are free? (laughs) Profits were so high for The Godfather that earnings for Gulf and Western Industries, Inc., which owned Paramount, jumped from 77 cents per share to $3.30 a share for the year, according to the Los Angeles Times article dated December 13th, 1972. It was nominated for Best Director, Coppola, Best Supporting Actor for James Caan, Al Pacino, and Robert Duvall, Costume Design, Film Editing, Sound, and Dramatic Score, which was subsequently revoked, and I think is an absolute travesty. It won the 1972 Best Picture Award, Best Actor for Brando, who notably refused the award, and Adapted Screenplay for Coppola. In 1998, it was AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies at number three, In 2001, it was AFI's 100 Years 100 Thrills, the number 11 movie on their list. In 2005, for AFI's 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes, I'm Going to Make Him an Offer He Can't Refuse was number 2. In 2006, AFI's 100 Years of Film Scores, this was the number 5 of all time. 2007's AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies, the 10th Anniversary Edition, this was the number 2 movie. In 2008, for AFI's 10 Top 10, this was the number one gangster film of all time. In 1990, it was selected for Preservation in the United States National Film Registry. In 1992, The Godfather ranked sixth in Sight and Sound's Greatest Films of All Time Directors Poll. In 1998, Time Out conducted a poll, and The Godfather was voted the best film of all time. Also in 1998... The Village Voice ranked The Godfather at number 12 in its top 250 Best Films of the Century list based on a poll of critics. In 1999, Entertainment Weekly named it the greatest film ever made. In 2002, Sight and Sound polled film directors and they voted the film and its sequel as the second best film ever. The critics poll separately voted it fourth. Also in 2002, The Godfather was ranked the second best film of all time by Film 4 after The Empire Strikes Back. Again, in 2002, the film, along with Godfather Part II, was voted at number 39 on the list of the top 100 essential films of all time by the National Society of Film Critics. In 2005, it was named one of the 100 greatest films of the last 80 years by Time Magazine. The films that were selected were not ranked. In 2006, the Writers Guild of America voted it the number two on its list of 101 greatest screenplays after Casablanca. In 2008, it was voted in at number one on Empire Magazine's list of the 500 greatest movies of all time. In 2008 as well, it was voted at number 50 on the list of 100 greatest films by the prominent French magazine Cahier du Cinema. In 2009, The Godfather was ranked at number one on Japanese film magazines Kinema Junpo's top 10 non-Japanese films of all time list. In 2010, The Guardian ranked the film 15th in its list of 25 greatest art house films. In 2012, the Motion Picture Editor Guild listed The Godfather as the sixth best edited film of all time based on a survey of its membership. In 2012, the film ranked at number seven on Sight and Sound Director's Top Ten Poll. In 2014, The Godfather was voted the greatest film in a Hollywood Reporter Poll of 2,120 industry members including every studio, agency, publicity firm, and production house in Hollywood in 2014. In 2015, it was second on the BBC's 100 Greatest American Films, voted by the film critics from around the world. Did you know? Cinematographer Gordon Willis earned himself the nickname the Prince of Darkness, since his sets were so underlit. Paramount Pictures executives initially thought that the footage was too dark, until persuaded otherwise by Willis and Francis Ford Coppola that it was to emphasize the shadiness of the Corleone family's dealings. Did you know? Marlon Brando wanted to make Don Corleone look like a bulldog, so he stuffed his cheeks with cotton wool for the audition. For the actual filming, he wore a mouthpiece made by a dentist. This appliance is on display in the American Museum of the Moving Image in Queens, New York. Did you know? Marlon Brando did not memorize most of his lines and read from cue cards during most of the film. As a matter of fact, Marlon, who was the father of method acting, was famous for this. He felt that doing a cold open type reading for the cameras and then using that very first unpracticed take was the best way to get an authentic performance. He did the exact same thing for Superman. The set for Krypton was filled with cards pasted here and there for Marlon as he read his lines for the first time. Did you know? There was intense friction between Francis Ford Coppola and Paramount Pictures, in which Paramount Pictures frequently tried to have Coppola replaced, citing his inability to stay on schedule, unnecessary expenses, and production and casting errors. Coppola actually completed the film ahead of schedule and under budget. Did you know? Francis Ford Coppola turned in an initial director's cut running two hours and six minutes. Paramount Pictures production chief Robert Evans rejected this version and demanded a longer cut with more scenes about the family. The final release version was nearly 50 minutes longer than Coppola's initial cut. I would like to see that at one time. Did you know? Francis Ford Coppola held improvisational rehearsal sessions that simply consisted of the main cast sitting down in character for a family meal. The actors and actresses couldn't break character, which Coppola saw as a way for the cast to organically establish the family roles seen in the final film. Did you know? Orson Welles lobbied to get the part of Don Vito Corleone, even offering to lose a good deal of weight in order to get the role. Francis Ford Coppola, a Welles fan, had to turn him down because he already had Marlon Brando in mind for the role and felt Welles wouldn't be right for it. Did you know? Don Vito Corleone's distinctive voice was based on real-life monster Frank Costello. Marlon Brando had seen him on television during the estes Kefauver hearings in 1951 and imitated his husky whisper in the film. Did you know? George Lucas put together the mattress sequence, the montage of crime scene photos and headlines about the war between the five families, as a favor to Francis Ford Coppola for helping him fund American graffiti. He asked not to be credited. Lucas used photos from real crime scenes. The corpse on the ground near a chain-link fence is Frank Nitti, a.k.a. The Enforcer. Al Capone's right-hand man who had not been murdered, but actually shot himself. And during the scene, Coppola's father, Carmine, is the piano player. Did you know? One of the reasons why Francis Ford Coppola finally agreed to direct the film was because he was in debt to Warner Brothers to the tune of $400,000 budget overruns on George Lucas's THX 1138 from 1971. Lucas urged him to take the job. Did you know? Sergio Leone was approached to direct the film, but turned it down since he felt the story, which glorified the mafia, was not interesting enough. He later regretted refusing to go on to direct his own critically acclaimed gangster film, Once Upon a Time in America. Did you know? Francis Ford Coppola was reluctant to let his sister, Talia Shire, audition for the role of Connie. He felt she was too pretty for the part and did not want to be accused of nepotism. Only at Mario Puzo's request did Shire get a chance to audition. Did you know? Al Pacino boycotted the Academy Awards ceremony, angry that he was nominated for the Best Actor in Supporting Role Oscar, noting that his character had more screen time than his co-star, Best Actor winner Marlon Brando. Did you know? Al Pacino's maternal grandparents emigrated to America from Corleone, Sicily, just as Vito Corleone had. Did you know? In 1974, the film premiered on NBC over two nights, Saturday, November 16th, and Monday, November 18th, from 9 to 11 p.m. On both nights, at 11 p.m., New York City's municipal water authorities had some overflow problems from all of the toilets flushing around the same time. All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. All right, gentlemen, what is this movie about, or what would be the elevator pitch?
2: An American business story told in the theme of organized crime
1: not bad three idiots struggle to support an empire they can't control no (laughs) but (laughs) that's not that far off not far off i know uh if i really had to elevator pitch it the greatest mobster in history is sunsetting his kingdom and he has no idea who to pass it to
0: wow i mean i guess you could relate it to king lear in that way Uh, I went with, despite his father Vito's wishes, the Corleone crime family business is thrust upon his youngest son, Michael, after he falls victim to an inner mob war in New York. I think it's a little too plot-heavy. I actually prefer either of yours because it kind of describes a little bit more of the thematic glory of this movie. So best performances. Dad, what did you have down? I had Al Pacino. I I thought Al
2: Pacino did a very, or a, a fabulous job for a, considering he really was not that interested in the film and had not had no idea that he would actually get the part. I think uh, ultimately he bought in and, and did uh, an outstanding job. The subtlety of his going from being kind of the outsider and kind of happy-go-lucky at the beginning of the film to becoming real focused and cold and calculated as the movie progressed to become the Don, I thought was really great because the subtlety was such that you didn't realize it completely until the scene at the very end with Kay, and no, I didn't. And then the door closes, and you know he's he's completed his metamorphosis.
0: You know, you mentioned that Pacino was uh, not necessarily invested. I actually take it the other way. If you've listened to a lot of recent interviews with him, you know how much uh, Coppola had to go to the bat for him repeatedly during the course of this movie because Paramount kept wanting to fire him all throughout the dailies. Well, you have to go back
2: to the original, which was he picked the people he wanted. Coppola, early on in the process when he was doing the casting, actually had Pacino, Khan, Duvall, and Diane Keaton come out for a screen test at his expense. The only thing he charged the studio for was $500 for lunch that he had catered into his home in San Francisco. And he then presented it to them and said, this is what I want, here are the people. Well, they could see maybe... Duvall, to some extent, he was a nobody, though. They could kind of see Khan, but the one that they absolutely said no to was Pacino because he didn't even know his lines. And they were like, if he doesn't care enough to learn the lines for the screen test, why should we hire him? And so that's what started it. They then proceeded to go on a, uh, like, screen test about 400 different actors for those parts to the tune of forty or four hundred and seventy five thousand dollars that they spent on it. And then it ended up coming back to the same people Hopla had for his that they could have spent five hundred dollars and been done.
0: I do think one of the great legacies of this franchise is the amount of great casting that they had. You talked about Diane Keaton, but John Cazale, who is only really in four major films that I can really recall. But I mean, it's an absolute murderer's Row of the 70s. The Deer Hunter, Godfather, Godfather Part Two and Dog Day Afternoon. I mean, those are just absolutely four iconic films before he unfortunately passed away. James Kahn, when people still wanted to work with James Kahn, Marlon Brando. (laughs) Sure. Robert Duvall. I mean, De Niro's in the second one, wins an Oscar. Pacino, when he's in his huge run of the 70s, I think he had four movies back to back to back that I don't think anybody could compete with. Godfather, Serpico, Godfather Part Two, and Dog Day Afternoon in four consecutive years. I mean, it's an absolute murderer's row of great casting. And then throw in Diane Keaton, who is also one of the great actresses of the 70s. It's iconic to me that a lot of these characters had greatness outside of this franchise, yet I think some of their best roles were inside of the franchise. Rob, who did you have as your best performer?
1: You know, I got—I have to give it to Brando, and I know he's one of these people that was really a challenging actor to work with and things like that. I mean, you know, you you take Marlon Brando, and everybody knew him in the, you know, 50s, 60s, and 70s, you know, this handsome guy and kind of the, the big cheese and things like that. But for him to to in you know the screen test stuffing the cotton into his mouth and eventually getting the having them get the prosthesis that you know gives Vito Corleone that very saggy cheeks and things like that i really think that crafting that character had he done that with a straight face if you will that i don't think we'd we would have the archetypical mob boss don The, you know, that kind of person that we see all throughout pop culture. You wouldn't have, again, Fat Tony from The Simpsons. He wouldn't be that, that paunchy guy. He, you know, Marlon Brando, and I think the way he played it, the way he played that he was like, I am king. I am the Don is one of the greatest things about this movie that he took that role by the horns and and made it his. You know, there, there's nobody else who I think, with the exception maybe of Al Pacino, because he has so many other roles where he plays that guy like Tony Montana from Scarface. I mean, come on. That's, another, that's you know, the Godfather Cuban version, but <laughs> in this case. But I think Brando really sets the tone and the stage for an entire genre with his performance.
0: I do think that he somewhat makes the movie for me. I've maintained for a long time, as far as my personal preferences, I prefer the Godfather because it's not so much of a drudge through the absolute blackness of what part two becomes, especially near the end where Michael's just, it's almost a descent into hell. The first one, it's still a rise and you can see Michael or slowly dwindling downward and assuming the reins of the family. But he does it in a way where he's still getting the upper hand on everybody. Every time there's a victory for Michael, it seems like it's something we can actually cheer when he gets a victory in part two. It's almost something where we're reviled by his actions in this one. I still think the upper hand of the rise of Don Vito makes this a much more enjoyable watch. Because even though he's not in the majority of the film due to his being shot early on, and then his specter still hangs over everything. And it's one of the most iconic and legendary characters in all of cinema. You mentioned how many times it's been homage. He is my most charismatic because I do think that he carries big portions of the film. And he really seems not only benevolent, by resisting the drug trade early on in the movie, and then coming around to it by making peace at the end of the movie. But he also seems to be wiser than just about everybody else. He can see all of the pieces moving. He's the only one that identifies that it's Barzini that's been in charge all along of the plot behind trying to get rid of him and make this power play. He's the one that sees whichever of my two captains is going to come and offer you a peace deal or a meeting with Barzini. That's the one who's truly betrayed you. Every move he sees in advance. And because of that, you can root for this side because they seemingly are going to have the right answer at every turn. On a secondary notice, uh, I went with Pacino as well as my best secondary performer. So we've already talked about him, but I went in a completely different direction because I don't know if This movie is the same if this franchise is the same without Coppola's vision. And so he gets my best performer from we talked about acting and his casting being a significant portion of this role, knowing that he could identify some of the great young actors of their generation to be able to just drop into this movie and become iconic characters to the fact that he was able to be faithful enough to Puzo's book, but still put his own stylistic Notion on everything to the fact that he picked the exact right cinematographer who did everything in shade during the course of the movie with everything in the house to make you basically appreciate that inside the house, inside the family business where it's this temple, everything is dark because all of the decisions they have to make are dark. I mean, there's so many different little pieces to establishing the world of the Godfather that he makes that. I think, need to be recognized because I don't think anything else is made or done with this franchise without his vision of exactly what it should be. And so I think he is the architect of everything. So best secondary performers. Dad, who did you have?
2: Well, I'll agree with you on Coppola, but I I couldn't. I had difficult time, so I actually picked to call me a wuss, but I had to do it.
0: That's not the word I would use. Maybe cheater.
2: Whatever. Anyway, so yes, for the same reason. uh, Coppola, and it's not just for the directing. He basically wrote the screenplay. Puzo wrote the first draft of the screenplay. But Coppola did all the rewrites and such with Puzo's approval. He cleaned it up, made it more precise, made it more cinematic. So I think that that combination really was significant and really helped propel the film forward. The other one, though, is because I just love his performance, is Robert Duvall. Um, I think Duvall did such a good job. If you watched, (laughs) he was involved in er almost every major decision. He was involved in almost every aspect but yet you never saw him actually say something that was illegal or take an action that was illegal he you know it wasn't like oh yeah let's let's off this guy or yeah you should probably no none, none of that so he had a knack for being and and you could see the knowledge or the acknowledgement on his face a lot of times he knew what was going on but if i don't say anything about it then i can always say i, I can deny it
0: Wow. Shocking that the lawyer celebrates the lawyer from the film. <laughs> <laughs> Rob good. who jab
1: down. I'm going to go with James Kahn because I think that the, you know, we talked about kind of the the trifecta or the triptych of, of personalities. And I think he's just so, he's kind of the, I don't want to say he's the dumb violent one, but he's, he's the violent one. And it just, I think it takes a lot to be, cruel and, and oppressive to another person, even if you're not, if you're, if that's not, your like normal, like to act that I think is very, is a, a big challenge, if you will. And those people that do that and do it well, I think deserve a lot of respect. Um, You know, especially the uh, beating up uh, of Carlo, I think is just, you know, sort of the, the, the violence inherent in that of like, you know, you can work with these, these people and things like that. Like these are kind of your friends, but you're like not, being the the best person to them, and again, that shows sort of the darkness, I guess, of the of being a part of the you know, La Cosa Nostra and things like that. But like just watching James Conn kind of go apeshit on this guy, I think is is really a a major major nod to how talented he was in this role.
0: You mentioned that, and I guess I hadn't appreciated the subtle quality of his performance because that part really requires you to dial it up almost to an overacting level. And we often appreciate guys on this show that overact and have to do very boisterous or chaotic, maybe even inflammatory or combustible performances like this, but often miss the mark because they have to just so get into the combustible nature of their performance that it just doesn't seem authentic. There is nothing about Sonny Corleone that is ever inauthentic in this movie.
1: Right. And the other thing, too, is like, you know, if you watch that fight, it's, you know, you, you think of like movie fights, you know, people kind of squaring up and things like that. It's, it's very much, it's very primal. Like, it's, it's like two two apes chasing each other. You know, one monkey's mad at the other and he's after him. And there's this, this franticness to it of he's kind of got him, you know, he's got him hanging on the, the, the side rail there and he's like, he's biting him and shit like that. It's just like, this is a little bit weird. It's a little bit like, so I think that capturing that weirdness is is why uh, Kong gets a nod.
0: So I went with Al Pacino, as I kind of mentioned before, but I'll go into a little bit more depth. The intensity with which he descends during the course of this movie, and you can clearly see it more where he's gotten to that point, but hasn't completely lost his soul in part two. And I know we're drawing conclusions, but it's kind of like two halves of one movie realistically, it's just like a six-hour TV show for all intents and purposes. The small subtlety where his eyebrow ridges just become more intense the longer this movie goes. You talked about at the beginning where he's kind of the happy-go-lucky. I don't know if I'd quite describe it as that, especially since he's now a unenlisted Marine when he shows up to the wedding. But during the course of the film, he just continually knows and identifies his purpose as he goes along. And you can kind of just see it. It's very slight up until the point where you mentioned at the end, the closing of the door, which has always been an iconic part of both movies. There's a closing of the door on K as we end the movie in both parts. Realistically, to me, until he gets to that absolute last point and accepts his role as the Don, there's still a, okay, can he come back? Can he somehow extricate himself from the family? And he just continually, I don't know, through fate or that he just acquiesces to his role in life, but you see that he continually makes decisions that put him in the position of this is what I'm going to have to become. And it's slowly that intensity that builds within him that I can appreciate out of his performance personally. Over the course of part one and part two, it may be one of the best acting performances in all of cinema.
2: So, in other words, Michael is George Bailey criminalized.
1: Nice. It's nice. Not a bad I like it. Line to draw. Well done, Dana. Well done. I like that. <laughs> George Bailey is a criminal. It's great.
0: So, I already put Mike most charismatic is uh, Marlon Brando. What did you both have
1: down? Rob, let's start with you. I hate to copy on this one, but yes, there, there is nothing that tops the oozing power and grandiosity of people coming up and, and kissing Vito Corleone's ring and, and and you know asking him for favors. There like it is the literal, like if you look in a dictionary and look for the definition of big dick energy, that's it, man. It's he is just tremendous and I I, again I hate to copy on this but I really don't think anybody else in this particular film eclipses that or even comes really close I mean yes it's it's a distant second or a distant third but I think just the grandiosity like I said before of who the Don is and just capturing that just right because I know there were there was consultation from actual Mafia and mob families on this. And I'm sure that's a lot of that kind of bleeding into that role of like, no man, when you meet the Don, you kiss his ring, and you you are humble. And you um I actually read, I can't remember who it was, but uh some of his first lines, I think it was uh Aladieri, uh with some of his first lines with Marlon Brando as the Don. He, you know, it's a first take, but they used the first take because he was stuttering and 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 kind of falling over his words and capturing that almost fear of this guy who is like he's powerful, but he's not powerful in your traditional like great warrior type way. He's got this, again, this, this feeling around him of gravitas and weight. Uh, and that's not making fun of Marlon Brando's waistline in this case. <laughs> but, no, I think
0: they do establish through the first scene. Realistically, when you – It was not a scene I appreciated until probably my 25th watching. I thought it kind of starts really slow, but it's establishing. There's not a more iconic start to a movie than Vito versus, and I can't remember the character's name, but the Undertaker that starts the film. And they're both basically in spotlight. It's when you go to a stage play and the narrator walks out and there's just a spotlight on him, that's very much how this movie starts, is you're going to have two characters doing monologues, and the only thing you're going to see is really a close-up of their face. And it established one guy as the weaker of the two asking for a favor, and the other guy as the one able to grant the favor.
1: And he can grant it with, so like, it's easy for him. He's almost like some, you know, fat Italian genie. And people are asking for, for, you know, significant things. Like I want that role at that, in that movie. And it's like, okay, done. And then he sends, uh, uh, was it, was it John Marley out there? I think, uh, uh, Jack Waltz out there or no, Jack Waltz is the producer. He sends, uh, Duvall out. Yeah. He sends du- uh, Duval or Tom Hagen out there to, you know, make the ask about like a Hollywood producer. Like, I, I don't know anybody who can do that in my life. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I don't know if you guys do, but I think that's a huge thing about saying who, who the the Corleones are as as a family is that they can just like send somebody and be like, "Yo, go knock on this Hollywood producer's door and tell him that you you're going to get that role."
0: I think if we did know somebody like that, there would be a much wider listening audience for this podcast. Ha
2: ha ha ha. <laughs> uh, I had Brando, and
0: so it's a three peat Okay,
2: yeah, and and quite frankly, I'm, the only thing I'm going to add to this is that. Brando, this, this was the role that was made for Brando because everything I've ever seen or read or seen in interviews or whatever, he would just have been, if he could have, he would have just wanted everybody to come up and kiss his ring as an actor. He wanted everybody to just adore him and that he could just treat them like shit. And he did everybody around him all the time. Figured, "Eh, yeah, if you don't like it. I'll find other people because I'm Brando and I'm the
0: best. So it's the perfect marriage of an actor to a part because he's the godfather of acting. written for him. Yeah. Well, I think he's the godfather of method acting. That too. All right. So let's go to best scene then. I have a quite long list. This movie is almost a three-hour running time and one of the longest ones we've covered on the show so far, at least till Dad and I do our month of really long best picture winners, like Out of Africa or The Last Emperor. But uh, first one up for me, Connie's Wedding, Waltz's Wake-Up Call, Vito Gunned Down, Luca Brasi Sleeps with the Fishes, The Hospital, Michael Kills Salazzo, Michael courts Apollonia, Sonny Beats Down Carlo, Car Bomb, Sonny in the toll booth. Brokering Peace, Vito's Final Moment, Settling All Family Business, and Don Corleone. So out of these, what would be your best scene? And I'll even increase it this week. What would be a good honorable mention? Maybe we should start with honorable mention first before we get to best.
2: Sonny Gunned Down. It was, it was just really well done, the fact that he's in such a rage to go after Carlo. This is where he slips up. He puts himself in a position, doesn't take anybody with him to guard him, doesn't help out, doesn't, doesn't realize he's being set up for a kill, and it ultimately is his demise.
0: When the tollbooth door closes, I really wish, when you've seen a movie this many times, you start to lose what your initial reaction was to an iconic moment that's surprising. And I wish almost that I could go back and at least remember what it was to watch that for the first time, because that has to be one of the most surprising moments that I can think of, not only in this movie, but a lot of the great movies of all time, because you don't see it coming.
1: Honorable mention, I actually, in on reflection on this I think the wedding scene is, is such a – it's so well set up because it's it, – it, on the surface, it's very happy and joyous and things like that. But you you get to drill in and you realize that that happy event is this cover for so much going on underneath it. And I think it's really neat that, it, that they juxtapose this event where all the people that you meet underneath – pop to the surface for a bit and they actually like act like normal people at a rich people's wedding and then they kind of submerge back down and they go do their their crazy illegal stuff. And it's like, man, that that takes some talent. And obviously with you know who's directing this, in this case the, the talent was there, it takes talent to weave a scene like that with two separate types of thread, the light thread and the dark thread, to you know, kind of make it work and, and fit together. So I really actually like the wedding scene and I think it's got a lot of a lot of great, you know, quotable lines, you know, there's the daughter my daughter's wedding day, I cannot refuse a favor, things like that. And I'm not, you know, quoting it verbatim there, but there's a lot that comes out of that scene. I do appreciate
0: it. Again, when we watch these films for the show, it's a different set of eyes than I would ever before. I've watched this movie probably 30 some times before, but I don't necessarily appreciate The dichotomy of arranging the happy, joyous wedding outside with bright lights and singing and dancing to the quiet silence and darkness of the interior of the house in that office. Because there's shady shit going on in the background, yet outside you would think this was one of the most regular family occasions that you could ever see. A ethnic wedding that's going to be happy and dancing and singing and just everybody enjoying themselves. And yet in the background, that's where everything's really happening. For me, honorable mention, I'm going to go with the hospital. I don't think it's an appreciated scene nearly as much as it probably should be. To me, this is the point where Michael starts on his journey to becoming the Don. He seems overmatched. He seems like he's an innocent. He just wants to go to the hospital to see his dad because I don't know why there weren't more people at the hospital trying to be with Vito, or at least more stationed guards, but it seems really easy to bump off a mafia leader in New York, of all places, in the mid-1940s. And yet, not only does he show his ingenuity, taking Enzo, the baker, and planting him outside, put up your collar, act like you have a gun, we're going to delay everything, he stands up to the police captain, gets his cheekbone broken. I mean, there's so many little small parts that basically harden him to where he's, okay, now I'm part of the family business for the first time going into the next part of this, which I think most people signify him killing Salazzo as the jumping off point for his descent into the Don. To me, it's getting punched by the police captain because now he's truly involved. He's a part of everything. He has the battle scars to prove it. That's exactly what I want to say. That's going to be my honorable mention.
2: I actually had that as my best scene. Ooh. For the very reason you said, because it's at that moment in time he realizes that nobody is going to take care of things. Nobody is going to take care of his dad. Nobody is going to take care of the business unless I step up and do it.
0: Good point. For my best scene, I mean, how do you pick between some of the most iconic scenes ever? But I'm going to go with the brokering peace negotiation. I really think that that's the final moments of, you know, when you have a song and you have the bridge and it's kind of a slightly different verse that has some music that kind of breaks from everything else before you get back into the regular action. The brokering peace deal to me is kind of this weird bridge in the movie And it's significant because it gives Vito all of the information that he needs to read the room and eventually inform Michael of how to end the movie. But it's his last great moment of reaction that he's going to have in his life. The last great power plays of the Don. And it's the one area where you really get to see him be front and center and the power broker once more with a lot of other powerful people in the room. But he's still the center of attention. He's the one with all the judges and politicians in his pocket that he won't negotiate with. It's a power play by him. And I think it's the, if you're to nominate one scene for Vito winning the Oscar or for Marlon Brando winning the Oscar, I think it's this one.
1: I have to, I almost feel like, I don't want this to feel like it's a cop out because, but it's one of the the best known. And it's because it's so shocking. You know, it's, it's Walt's wake up call. There's a horse head in your bed. Man, pulling down those sheets and being like, like even the first time I saw this, I think I was like fourteen or fifteen years old, and pull it down and you see a severed horse head or, or what looks to be a real deal severed horse head, and it was that was the crazy part, and like seeing that and going like, holy crap, like oh my god, they they, they saw the head off his horse, like and also that takes a lot of effort. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's think of the logistics of that. The horse is not a small creature. You have to number one incapacitate the horse in some way to removing a horse's head with its neck part of it, you know, like it's, like it's not the not a, an easy thing to do. And I think that the scene, it encompasses the feeling of what the Corleone family will do to see their goals achieved in this case. And like that, that poor animal, like if you really think about it, like off camera, What happened with that? That had to be a horrific scene. Had to be absolutely awful. But they did that horrible thing to advance the goals of what they needed to do with their organization, even if it's just granting somebody a a favor. Like, that's crazy.
0: I don't think it's a cop-out. I do think there are a lot of people that would go in that direction because it was such a shocking moment. And it's still one of the most iconic moments in an iconic film. To me, though, the big question is... How do you get it into Waltz's bed without him noticing? I think the logistics of that are even more difficult. You would have probably had to sedate him in some direction. So did you pay off some people to put something in his drink? Or how did that all go about? Because slipping not only the horse head into the bed, but under the sheets, to me, is the more difficult thing. But... There is no bigger symbol of we can get to you anywhere and you are not safe no matter where you are and who you are. I don't care if you're a Hollywood big shot or the president of the United States, we can get to you. Than the horse head in the bed.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, and also a horse head is probably what, 80 or 90 pounds. Like lugging that thing there is a logistical nightmare too. You know, Just moving an 80 pound thing. You probably had to have a couple of people. Definitely.
0: Easily. Favorite scene for me, it's settling all family business. It's the moment in the film that I really love and look forward to, and everything after that's just kind of like a ramp down slightly. I mean, I know the art artistry of the finishing touches to the film. Okay, we're gonna have the conversation with Carlo; he's gonna be killed. We gotta have the conversation with Kay. Gotta have the door closed, and all of those things are still important. But the real climax of the movie to me is. I'm going to end the family war and we're going to kill the heads of the five families and I will become the most powerful man in America all at the same time, while renouncing the devil, of course.
2: I, I've gone back and forth and back and forth. I guess my favorite scene is just the opening, the wedding scene itself, because it just it sets the tone and the pace of the film. It's like in a novel where... The first line of the novel can kind of set the novel in the tone and pacing of it for the rest of the book. The opening scene, if, if you don't have a good opening scene, it's a struggle to get the audience back. And that ultimately, I think, is what set the tone. The sheer brilliance of just putting two people together. And a request and a whisper in the ear. And then uh, Brando having to explain why he was going to grant, but only in part. It just, just seems to me to be a brilliant method and way of setting the, the
0: uh, film. I don't remember a ton about what happened in high school or what I learned in high school, but there are very few things I remember. This is one of them. My freshman band leader. It doesn't matter what you do in the middle. The audience only really remembers how you begin and how you end.
1: I hate to double up on this, but that horse head, man, that horse is is so shocking. It is on the level of, of the, I think some of the greatest scenes in all of movie history. I mean, you pull, you pull out, you know, all of these, you know, great speeches, great, you know, special effects scenes and things like that. And while there is, yes, there's a little bit of special effects. There's a a prop as a horse head, but like, Just the sheer and utter, I think, almost revulsion of that scene is so tremendously powerful even today. And I cannot imagine being alive 50 years ago, seeing that in a movie theater when, yes, blood was a thing in in early 70s movies. But, you know, you can tell nowadays, you know, kind of looking back at there probably wasn't anything done that well with it in Hollywood up until that moment I mean you we talk about you know pinnacle special effects you know Jurassic Park and all these things like that this is one of those moments this is one of those moments that ages tremendously well even after half a century and I think that's why it's my favorite scene
0: it's why it's my most indelible moment as well I think that's the number one iconic moment from the rest of the movie dad your most iconic or most indelible
2: Sleeping with the fishes.
0: You know, I've heard that
2: line, and I'll have to admit, this is the first time I've sat and watched this film from the beginning to the end. I have probably watched this film a dozen times, but I'll catch the the first half hour, and then I'll watch like the last hour and a half, and then I'll watch like two hours in the middle, but. I don't know if I'd ever seen that particular scene in all of the overlapping times I've seen the film. So I just like, and it's such a iconic statement that's quoted so often that to me it's just a marker.
1: Gonna have to agree with Dana here again. It's you know a, a, a fish wrapped in a vest like that's number one. Like what a me- like these people have messaging down is what it boils down to is that when they are sent when they are sending a message to somebody, number one, it's done in a way that is horrifying in, in a sense, but it's also, it's, it's like also there's metaphorical levels to it and things like that. And I really think that that's part of what makes a lot of these scenes really fantastic is that they are, they're not done in such a way that they are so just like upfront with you, but like, okay, there's a fish inside of a vest Oh, he's sleeping with the fishes. What was that? Well, we murdered him and threw him in the river. Like it takes multiple levels to get to dig down to that. And I love that about scenes like this because that's what good filmmaking is. It's not necessarily, you know, putting exposition out there all the time or reveals out there all the time. It's giving it the sort of that, again, those extra layers that you as a viewer have to sort of sift through and dig through. And then of course, probably make this movie very rewatchable as well. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go with sleeping with fishes.
0: Another great example of don't tell me, show me.
1: Yes. It's a, what's that Chekhov's gun? I don't remember. Yeah, it's Chekhov's gun. I think there's a gun on screen in the first, first scene at some point in time, that gun should play a role. (laughs) Don't tell me, show me.
0: (laughs) All right. We'll take another quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. All right, Dad, before we get too much further, let's do our in-memoriam for the week. Do we have anybody to remember?
2: Yes. Hardy Kruger, 93, German actor, best remembered for his leading and supporting roles in war films, but who uh, showed understated skill in tender dramas such as the Oscar-winning Sundays and Sybil. He also starred in the 1957 British drama The One That Got Away, which was based on a true story about a captured German fighter pilot who stages daring attempts to uh, escape the Allies and, by the title suggests, finally succeeds. The film, tautly directed by Roy Ward Baker, drew excellent reviews and elevated Mr. Kruger's cachet in English-speaking cinema. Mr. Hardy starred with John Wayne in the safari movie Atari, and appeared in the all-star cast of The Flight of the Phoenix, alongside James Stewart, Richard Attenborough, and Peter Finch. He also had roles in Barry Lyndon, A Bridge Too Far, and The Wild Geese. Peter Robbins, 65, an American actor and voice actor, passed away. Uh, Robbins is best known for voicing the beloved blockhead in the classic holiday specials Charlie Brown's Christmas, and it's the great pumpkin Charlie Brown. Originating the trademark ah scream that continues to be used, along with the primetime specials Charlie Brown's All-Stars, You're in Love, Charlie Brown, He's Your Dog, Charlie Brown, and It Was a Short Summer, Charlie Brown. Robbins also voiced the so-called lovable loser in the first Penis feature film, A Boy Named Charlie Brown. Robbins suffered from bipolar disorder and paranoid schizophrenia. In 2019, the Charlie Brown actor was released from prison after serving 80% of a five-year sentence for making criminal threats. He told Fox 5 San Diego that year he intended to write a memoir about his experiences in jail entitled Confessions of a Blockhead. I came out of prison and I'm a better person for it, he said at the time. Much more humble, grateful, and thankful that I lived through the experience. In 2019, Robbins said his newly touched-up arm tattoo of Charlie Brown and Snoopy was a symbol of me refurbishing my life, adding of Peanuts fans. Charlie Brown's fans are the greatest fans in the world, and everybody is willing, I hope, to give me a second chance. Other roles included credits on Rawhide, episodes of the 1960s sitcoms, The Donna Reed Show, the Munsters, and The Farmer's Daughter. His final acting role was as Jeff Fredericks in a 1972 episode of My Three Sons. Tadus Bradecki, a 67 uh, Polish actor and director known for television theater in 1953. He was in Schindler's List in 1993 and Camera Buff in 1979. Bacik Mangasarian, 78, Armenian actor, A character actor who appeared on NCIS Los Angeles and The Mentalist had recently been filming the movie Moving On starring Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda and had also shared photos of him and the the actresses on his Facebook page. The Iranian-born Armenian actor moved to the United States at age 23 and worked as a waiter in Los Angeles while immersing himself in the entertainment scene. Mangasarian then landed his first film role for The South's Shark in 1978. His other TV credits include JAG, NYPD Blue, and Curb Your Enthusiasm. Catherine Cates, 73 American Actors, had a recurring role in the 1990s sitcom Seinfeld, starring alongside Jerry Seinfeld and Julie Louise Streitz. With a TV career spanning more than three decades, Kate's performed in a number of era-defining shows. She was also featured in the gritty Netflix series Orange is the New Black and the legal drama The Good Fight, as well as appearing in The Sopranos' original film The Many Saints of Newark. Louis Anderson, 68, American comedian and actor, won a 2016 Emmy for Best Supporting Actor for his portrayal of Christine Baskets mother of twins, played by Zach Galifianakis. Anderson received three consecutive Emmy nods for his performance. He was a familiar face ever or elsewhere on TV, including as host of a revival of the game show Family Feud from 1999 to 2002, and on comedy specials and infrequent late-night talk show appearances. Anderson voiced an animated version of himself as a kid, in Life with Louie. He first created the cartoon series which first aired in primetime in late 1994 before moving to Saturday mornings for its 1995 to 1998 run. Anderson won two daytime Emmys for that role. He made guest appearances on several TV series including Scrubs and Touched by an Angel. And he was on the big screen in 1988's Coming to America and in last year's sequel to the Eddie Murphy comedy. Meatloaf, 74, American singer-actor, the singer whose real name is Marvin Lee A. two biggest albums, 1977's Bad Out of Hell and the 1993 follow-up Bad Out of Hell 2, Back Into Hell, produced numerous sing- hit singles, including Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Two out of three a Bad, and I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that. He also won a Grammy in 1993 for the best solo rock vocal performance for the song, I'd do anything for love. Eatloaf also appeared in several TV shows and films, including the cult classic, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Fight Club, and Wayne's World.
0: We remember them now with a brief moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. That will take us to best funniest lines. And I don't know if a lot of these lines are necessarily funny, but they are iconic. I'm going to start with the most obvious ones. We just get it out of the way. I'm going to make him an offer. He can't refuse. My best attempt.
1: <laughs>
2: Dad, go ahead. A friend should always underestimate your virtues and an enemy overestimates your faults.
1: Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. There's a funny line. (laughs) Darkly funny, but very funny nonetheless. And ad lib too. Yes.
0: Uh, Sonny, Tessio brings in Luca Brasi's bulletproof vest delivered with a fish inside. What the hell is this? Clemenza, it's a Sicilian message. It means Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes.
2: Salazzo, I don't like violence, Tom. I'm a businessman. Blood is a big expense.
1: Uh, Let's see, they got to go with, oh, 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 the one. In Sicily, women are more dangerous than shotguns. (laughs) I really like that one.
0: (laughs) Dad, I don't know if you had this on your list or not, but if you didn't, I'm kind of surprised. Vito, I have a sentimental weakness from my children, and I spoil them. As you can see, they talk when they should listen. (sighs) Too close to home.
1: Right? (laughs)
0: Anybody got any remaining?
1: Now Those are my two quippy quips.
2: This is one line that I always remember. Abe Vagoda, who apparently was a, uh, a Shakespearean actor, did this part for no reason other than he looked Italian, and they wanted somebody who would come across as being kind of even-tempered. His line is, is, I always something to the effect is, tell Michael I always liked him, but this is business, and that this is business, It's not personal uh, is a line that's used by several. I know Tom Hagan used it uh, and and such. So I just always remembered that uh, phrase.
0: All right, let's go to the Stanley rubric. Legacy is up first. Which of you two gentlemen wants to give it a 10 first? I will.
1: (laughs) (laughs) As we said at the top of the show, Tom, you know, it's, The legacy of this thing is 50 years running strong across an entire genre and bleeding into others. I don't think there is, I would challenge somebody who is listening to this show, find me a more influential movie on a genre. Let's talk about that. But like, it's, it stands alone as defining everybody who came after them from Tony Montana to Fat Tony, to Tony Soprano, to... Anything that we we even do nowadays, even in other aspects of the the crime family genre, Peaky Blinders is still just a different twist on The Godfather.
2: For uh, industry five, for public, it's five because this movie just lives on. I, I think it it uh, established careers. And put people along a path that no one could ever anticipated, and I think it defined fifty years of filmmaking. Not just, not just in this genre. I think it crosses. There's a certain authentic, uh, authenticity that has been there since. That I don't think always was in movie making.
0: I think this is by far the more legendary of the two Godfather movies. I think that there's an appreciation maybe for the industry that's a little bit higher with part two, because they can see more of the Shakespearean drama from that one, the darkness, the, the tragedy a little bit more than this one. But I do think that this is one of the most iconic films that's ever been made. It stars several of the most iconic actors we've had of the last generation and of the 70s. It has one of the most iconic directors we've ever had, partly because of this franchise. I mean, you just kind of go down the accolades. Best Picture winner. It's on so so many different lists on Sight and Sound, on the AFI list. I mean, every possible area you look at, it's got to be a 10. I don't even want to go into the, the industry versus audience separation. The fact that the audience still warms to this movie, it's the 50th anniversary, and we still clamor for it and use it as an allegory or an analogy for everything else that we're doing in cinema. And we talked about how many different layers it can apply to, whether it's business movies or whether it's family movies or the aspect of this might be one of the best representations of a modern take on King Lear or the Shakespearean drama, or the tragedy. It has so many different layers and pieces to dissect. It is one of the great movies. It's a 10. I I don't think that's in dispute. And uh, no, I don't need help on the math. It's a 10 for all of us, (laughs) thus making the average a 10. (laughs) Impact Significance. It's a 10. This is one of the most iconic movies to ever come out. It was a huge box office hit. It delivered as far as the accolades for awards significance it delivered as the critics there weren't many people that didn't have a great word to say in the moment I mean I don't know how often that ever happens so you want to talk about the fact that it on its shoulders raised up the careers of Al Pacino Robert Duvall Diane Keaton resurrected Marlon Brando's career for the late part of the 70s I mean, how many different people are affected by this franchise and Coppola for whatever he wanted for the rest of the 70s, although it did take a while to get Apocalypse Now made, he basically had a blank check for part two. And for that matter, part three, 15 years later, was going to be one of the biggest movies that they had until people saw it. So uh, to me, this is a
2: bona fide 10. Dad? 10. I'm not even going to go on and belabor it. I, I I didn't do this, but I almost would wish I would have, is count the number of Oscars that have been derived from the participants in this movie
0: since. Well, just count the nominations. Yeah. From Parts 1 and Part 2. Part 2 is the only sequel to ever be nominated for Best Picture, but also the only sequel to win Best Picture. Yeah. But, I mean, just thinking
2: about how many nominations for Pacino... Diane Keaton, for Robert Duvall, for Marlon Brando, all of the actors since that were involved in this. And this is one of the few times where art was a blockbuster.
0: Well, that was all over the 70s. This is one of the few times that we've had a movie that was both a 10 in the legacy and in the impact significance. And I don't think it's any coincidence that our number one movie on the list is Jaws was also one of the biggest cultural icons of 1975. And we're probably going to have the same thing when we talk about Star Wars. The 70s is basically the lightning rod where art and pop culture met. And it's probably the last time that we had those two where the movie could be big among audiences and critics at the same time. We get that right now in television, but we certainly don't get it in movies currently.
2: Well, let's just put it this way. Paramount was about broke when they did this film. And this is what saved them. And most of the theaters were broke about 1970 because TV had uh, eroded their profits substantially. So the 70s really defined, I think, movie making and keeping it as alive as a genre uh, until now. It'll be interesting to see what develops uh, over the next uh, 10 years because... The pandemic
0: has really done a number to movies. So Rob, are you going to make it a straight 10 for us again?
1: <sighs> There's part of me that doesn't want to, but I think it would be disingenuous to do so. Stay true to yourself. No movie is perfect. I think I have to, g- no, I think I'm going to go with a 10. I really do. It's for everything that you both have said, it, the The masterfulness of this film is pretty much untouched. I mean, and again, we said, said earlier, Stanley Kubrick thought this was perfection. And when somebody of that genius level thinks that they, you've stumbled upon it. I mean, who am I to dispute that?
0: (laughs) Novelty. Uh, Dad, let's let you go first.
2: Well, this is where I'm going to go down significantly. There were a lot of gangster films in the fifties and sixties, not to mention the thirties and forties. And, A big part of this and why it wasn't even, there was a debate as to whether it should be or could be made. Several studios turned it down because crime stories or crime films aren't very good and they don't sell. And so there were enough of them that it weighted it down. This became something special, but it's not that novel. So I'm going to go with a four because there was that many that
0: were going on. All right Rob go ahead break it to me softly
1: yeah I think I gotta I gotta take the same as, as Dana uh maybe not as as deep maybe but I think the novelty you know there were tons of crime movies before this like like Dana said and I think that sort of once you see this one the first time it's like okay this is what it is I guess like is this a film that I would, rewatch and rewatch and rewatch to a, to a point and I know we're going to talk about that in a little bit but like the novelty of like ooh another crime film like hey eh, you know so I think that probably take me to about a 6 for this. We'll do a 6.
0: All right, I'm going to be off in left field then. I went with a 10. <laughs> when you are the top movie of your genre, you redefine and reset and make people interested in crime. When you're not really even mentioning the crimes. Yes, there's violence in this movie, but they're never connected to it personally, other than Sonny being gunned down and Michael doing the shooting inside the restaurant. Does Don Vito ever lift a finger to actually commit a crime during the course of the movie? Does he ever actually give out a hit order? All of these things serve to me to make this movie more relatable. It did so many different things that were revolutionary as far as storytelling, as far as redefining the crime genre, as far as promoting some of its cast, I don't think it's necessarily the most novel as far as it's just completely different from all other things that came before it. But we've said on multiple occasions, just because it's original or different doesn't mean it's novel and vice versa. I think that sometimes novelty can be excelling as a part of a category more than your peers. And to me, outside of, I think some people will nominate maybe like Godfather part two or Goodfellas as being in the same class. Okay, fine. But to me, this is the creme de la creme of not only crime, but business of family movies of applying Shakespearean dramas to modern themes. So I went with a 10. I will stay with my 10
2: all right. You've persuaded me. I will at least go up to rob 6 simply because you did point out that there's a broader definition of novelty than just that the subject had been done to death before.
1: I think there are some better examples of novelty for like a family and business as well. I mean, like if you look at Wall Street, like I think that that is just that's a business movie, you know, in that case. Well, exactly.
0: But let's just take even an example of Star Wars. I think most people would say Star Wars by itself is novelty, but Star Wars took lessons from Kurosawa and the Hidden Fortress and basically borrowed the plot of that movie in order to do it, but applied it in fantasy and science fiction. There were other space movies, there were other fantasy movies, but it combines all of those genres into one thing, and then makes it something completely brand new. Now, this does not necessarily make a completely brand new genre, but it's excelling in an area where other movies have not to this point. And realistically, when you talk about the great gangster crime films, either you're going back to the 30s with Cagney and with Edward G. Robinson or you're skipping the 50s and 60s because there aren't weren't a lot of great crime films that weren't terribly cliche. Yeah, yeah, she. And it's The Godfather and everything that came after The Godfather that was influenced by The Godfather. I mean, even Scarface that you referenced is a remake of an old movie from the 30s, but done with a lot of the stylistic touchings because both De Palma and Coppola are best friends that has a lot of influence and putting it in a different spin, because the remake is completely different than the original. So that's a 7.33 average between us. Classicness, Dad, you are up. I'm going to go, why well, I was thinking about this again, I'm going
2: to go with an 8, simply because it's difficult to mark down classicness much when it's a timepiece, because it just reflects what society and what the world is. And what it was. You know, you can't really criticize it for diversity because there wasn't diversity <laughs> in in the families and and much going on. The only thing I would I would tend to have some problem with is there was a certain level of stereotype of Italian Americans and Irish Americans uh, played by Sterling Hayden who I was Expecting at any moment in time to break up. Floridation. Floridation. <laughs> but, so that's why I marked it down. In fact, I just convinced myself to give it an 8.5 for that. So you went up slightly? Yep.
1: You know, I, I'm sure that there is something out there that is more classic than The Godfather, but, like, I am hard-pressed to think about it right now. Uh, it really is, you know, I think this movie you know, Dana, I think you have some good points that, that there are some things that perhaps influence the classicness of it, you know, stereotypically and things like that. And looking into the the way that neighborhoods were set up in America in the, in the forties, which, you know, this is a, a, a period piece, if you will, done 30 years later, you know, you had little Italy, you didn't have this wonderful, you know, kind of cross-pollination that we've had today where yet, yes, there still is a little Italy and Chinatown and things like that. But like you had every ethnic group living in its own little little part of the city. And I think that that taking that out and not and looking at it with a modern lens that looks probably very backwards, like actually I was was clicking around at IMDB here and there's a question of like where are all the black people? And It's like, well there, there weren't any in this part of the city. In this case, it's like, that's a really weird question. The answer to that is also like uh, something snarky of like, you know, it was 1972 and uh, white people studios didn't want, you know, didn't care. But that's not really the answer is that in a period piece like this, you had a neighborhood. And I think the, the classicness of this movie is very much built off of the fact that it is a period piece and it's a product of the time it was made in. And also the time that it is representing as well. And if there is one out there that is more classic than this, people, people listening, get in, get in Tom's inbox here. Uh, this would be a great, great thing to tell us what is more classic than The Godfather. I think I have to go with a nine point seven five in this case, only because I want somebody to tell me what that ten number ten movie is on term of classicness.
0: It's The Wizard of Oz. We already did that one. <laughs> That is the most classic because it's available for every generation. It doesn't seem to age. It's got a lot of iconic songs and movies. And the fact that it was made in 1939, but is still the same movie as it was when you were watching it on cable on Christmas in the mid 50s as it is now. I think there's still a wonderment the first time you see it. It's that one to me is more classic than this one.
1: But okay. See, frankly, it
0: I think there are a lot of actually a lot of movies that are more classic than this one. I had a very difficult time trying to grade this. There are so many think pieces that I read this week. So I'll try and go through it piecemeal. When you talk about the diversity, I'll mention just this factor. I don't mind that there weren't many black people or brown people because what New York is today was very different in the 70s was very different in the 40s. You talked about ethnic neighborhoods and being among Italians. I think that there were Italian-centric neighborhoods that you just didn't have a lot of mixing at that point. Very different than the Puerto Rican neighborhoods, even of the West Side Story from 1960, or you're talking about you know, even the Harlem stories that you'd get of the time. But also, you didn't have the Great Migration yet from the South into the Northern cities, in the mid-1940s or late-1940s where most of this is going on. It was starting to happen, but it wasn't necessarily the cultural takeover. So I don't buy that point. But where I have an issue with the diversity of this film is, and I'll ask it this way because somebody actually put this in a think piece I read. What's the name of Mama Corleone?
1: That's a great question.
0: You see her on screen maybe two minutes when she's singing at the wedding. Otherwise, she's never there this movie disposes of female characters at whim. You have a prostitute that's with Tatalia as he's being shot to death in the bed, basically saying that they're side pieces. You have Kay Hagen that's only there because Michael needs her in order to complete his transformation into the Don, but all of her character is just a reflection of how dark Michael's gotten from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie. I think she's actually a much stronger character in film two you only have Connie there to serve as a character to be beat up upon by her husband, which is normal as to the time frame of the movie, but to be a hysterical woman who reacts poorly to being cheated on, noticeable, but then also is only there to serve as the character by which Sonny has to get aggravated to be gunned down at the toll booth. She and Kay and Mama only are only in the movie to serve as furthering the plot and realistically could be seen as MacGuffins, not as characters with actual gravitas. Point number two. I give it a point and a half reduction to the noted stereotypes of Italian-Americans as everybody was now in the mafia or mafiosos, and this is how an Italian neighborhood would look in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and everybody that is Italian-American unfortunately gets tagged with Oh, you must be Sicilian, and you must have all of these little cultural references. Because I think this bled so much into Americana that this was somehow tied to what it was to be Italian. That you had to be part of a community, but there was a godfather that served over the top of it. And unfortunately, I think that kind of borrows it. Now, I do give this points for being iconic, for all of the things that we basically set up to this point. And so I'd love to somehow bridge the gap. My last point, and this is one I couldn't prove. I heard somewhere, but I couldn't find it this week, that apparently the character of Apollonia was actually 17 when she filmed the movie, and she does the only nude scene. So if she was underage, we now have a major iconic American film that has child pornography in it. Yikes. So I'm just... Maybe I'm irresponsible for putting that out there because I couldn't confirm it. I didn't end up giving it point reductions because I couldn't confirm it, but I ended up at a 7.5 because I do think there are issues with this that grade lower as we kind of go along, and I don't think it's a matter of wokeism. I just think it's a matter of fairness. Hmm. So this one I will actually have to do the math on. So that's an 8.58 average between us. All right, rewatchability. I've watched this movie so many times. I can remember watching this movie in the background on many different occasions while I was doing other work because I've seen this thing so many times. This is something that I would stop at when you had still cable movies and I wasn't primarily just a streamer. I'm somewhere in between a nine and a nine and a half. I guess I'll split the difference. I'll go with a 9.25. It feels a little bit like cheating, but I can't really make up my mind any other way.
2: Dad. I'm going to have to go with a seven for me because this is a film that I will probably watch on a more regular basis now that I've seen it all the way through. But it's not something I, I, I'm still going to have to be in the right frame of mind. This isn't going to be the comfort food that I crave sometimes in a film. Yeah. I understand why it would be for some people. I guess my more comfort food is comedy simply because I already live such a stressful, serious life that trying to relax by watching somebody else in a stressful, serious life is a little difficult. So,
1: Yeah, for this one, I think rewatchability for me, probably going to go with like about an 8.5. I think there's a lot to this movie. I think that you can dig deeper upon multiple rewatches and that you can catch things you didn't see and, and kind of, you know, focus in a little bit more on the you know each character as you uh, have a sort of relationship with this movie over time and i think it may it may even increase in watchability rewatchability as you rewatch it and i think that that's something that that is rare for a movie you know oddly enough i think that many movies lose their appeal when you overwatch them but I think this may be one that actually gains appeal to you as you, as you do rewatch it. And I think that that's something I'll be looking forward to seeing if not like in its entire, in its entirety, like Dana did, but uh, looking forward to to making a little bit more of uh, a revisit to every once in a while, because it is such an iconic film and it is such a, you know, it was three hours long. Like who, who did that back then, you know?
0: (laughs) All right. So then that makes it an 8.25 average between the three of us. With audience score, we had a 92% for Google users, 98% for Rotten Tomato users, for a 9.5 overall. So let's repeat, that was a 10 for Legacy, a 10 for Impact Significance, a 7.33 for Novelty, an 8.58 for Classicness, an 8.25 for Rewatchability, and a 9.5 for audience score. That adds up to a 53.66. Oh, and it is in between... All the President's Men, and just ahead of High Noon, by a 100th of a point.
1: Putting it at rank what?
0: Currently, between 5 and 6. So it'll be the new 6th place. I almost
1: called it, man. I said this is number 6 earlier. Oh my gosh. I almost feel like we did it dirty. I almost feel like we did Godfather dirty by not having it be in top 5. But math is math.
0: Well, this is the surprises that you get when you really factor in all of the little categories. I thought it had a chance when we go Legacy, Impact, Significance, right out the gate. It has those two tens. But yep. classicness, novelty, rewatchability for some of us really kind of weighed it down.
1: Yeah. I was going to say, man, Dana, you you devastated the sucker on novelty.
2: <laughs> he
1: came, back came up. up yeah. Yep. So,
0: all right. Remaining questions quick. Rob, do you have any?
1: You know, I think the fact that this goes into two other movies almost precludes this this section. But you know, with, with the principal filming on this film, this film not having been concluded by the time it got to a like, hey, they greenlit a sequel, like before they even like finished this movie. I think that's a testament to maybe having those questions back in the day as to what happens to these people going forward now that the, you know, the king is dead, if you will. So I think the, the question I would have were I to rewind 50 years ago is what is next for this group of people? Like it has been a bloodbath. There's a new guy in charge. What now? So I think that would be it. If I did not know that Godfather two was, you know, already going to be A going to be made back then and B came out just a, a couple of years later.
2: No, I guess I really don't have any. A lot of them would be, I'm sure, resolved by parts two and three. And so I'm just gonna leave it at that.
0: Yeah, I don't really have any. I think I've picked over this movie so many times. I've read so many other people's questions that I don't personally have questions. Like I could do the cheating thing and just borrow from other people who had questions and then have theories about those questions, but most of this is kind of settled in my mind by part two, at least. And so, I mean, you could ask the question of why did Michael all of a sudden decide that he was going to kill all of the heads of the five families? Well, I guess the other four heads of the five families in order to do that. Cause that kind of comes about so quickly, but you could also ask why the hell does Kay even go back to Michael after he's been gone for several years? And that's, that's one, but does it really detract from your seeing of the movie? Like I said, is kind of a throwaway character that's only there to serve in the changes in Michael because she can see that Michael's different after he commits the murder, goes to Sicily, and comes back. Now, I guess if you had a really odd, out-of-the-box question that's always kind of bugged me and no one's really ever theorized or thought about it, does Michael ever tell Kay about Apollonia?
2: I did wonder about that, but...
1: Yeah, good question.
2: I mean, also the fact is, is not only did he go to to Sicily, but he was back two years before he went back and talked to Kay.
1: Yeah, what are you doing, dude? (laughs) It's like,
2: he comes back and and she goes, oh, Michael, when did you get back? I've been back about two years. (laughs) And then continues on the conversation. I'm like, if I'm Kay, I'm going like, you bastard?
1: Yeah, what the hell, yeah. yeah.
2: (laughs) Thank God
0: you were back two years and didn't bother to contact me? So screw you. Again, I think it undermines her agency that is really set up by the second film, but oh well. So Rob, a sincere thank you for helping pinch hit on this one. We could not thank you enough. It is the 100th episode. We'll reflect on it here in a second, but we know we have to uh, let you go some birthday wishes to you, my friend.
1: Oh, thank you, Ben. Absolutely. Happy well, thank birthday. You, I won't thank you. Thank make you, yeah. you
0: publish your age. I, I know that gets harder with each passing year, but, uh, it's, uh, always good to have you on.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's asking about the age thing. Like I feel like it gets easier every year because like I'm looking at, at life, like a football game. And I feel like this is the kickoff to the second half here at 36. I think it's fantastic. So, uh, I'm looking to you know, we had a had a good run for the first 35 years, and and in about four hours we'll be having kickoff to uh, to half number two. And what I make of that is is what I make of it. So got a lot of plans for it. Be fun.
0: Well, congratulations to you on another year around the sun, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk to you soon. All right. So that leaves us to just I don't know how do you celebrate 100 for one of these things. I don't know how
2: do you. I've never. I don't know if I've been to a hundred of anything that I wish to celebrate.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a weird moment. I mean, it's not like the first hundred days of a presidency. I mean, the first 100 episodes of podcast, it's a significant number. It's a lot of episodes. And it's taken us uh, the better part of two seasons, well, all of two seasons and leaking into a third, but... I mean, realistically, we've had other episodes that could count towards this. I think this may actually be like 108 or 109 in just the totality of things, but some of them I don't count towards the episode load. We've done 97 different movies now, three revisits. So I don't know. The fact that we did The Godfather for the the 100th is significant to me, but I think we still have a long way to go.
2: Oh, yeah, easily. This could vir- virtually outlive me because I don't think I'll get to be a hundred.
0: Well, and if you start throwing in revisits and the list or the tiebreakers, because we have several t- films still tied on the list, or we add in new guests or we add in new movies, you know, the the list could be infinite.
2: Correct. But we just plug away, which is what we've been doing, which is how we got to a hundred. We're doing this because we like to do it, and we hope somebody appreciates it. We've had enough people who have. So that's how you get there is being willing to do it, continuously do it, pushing to do it, and being
0: committed to do it. So I know somewhat it's picking between your children, but if I had to ask a maybe a favorite episode of the first 100 here, what would you think?
2: Ooh, boy, this puts me on the spot because trying to think back. Boy, I'm, I'm I'm trying to think of some of them. I, I the greatest show on earth brings to <laughs> brings to bear on one because when I was a kid, I loved that movie so much that I saw it again, and I'm going, "What the hell was I thinking? This is terrible." So, to that extent, that was interesting. Just doing. Uh, uh, some of the comedies that we've done and such Uh dodgeball was fun. The aliens episode, I think was kind of fun, which I never thought I would actually get around to enjoy. So I guess to that extent, it, it's where I've had to stretch myself and watch things that normally I would not necessarily uh, appreciate.
0: So I've had some favorite movies that we've covered some new favorites that I've at least been introduced to. I I love the fact that we did three idiots, which was completely out of our comfort zone and has become one of our most popular episodes at this point. And we'll have to circle back to doing a lot more international films. We don't have any currently on the schedule, but I'm sure we're going to do some different things over the summer where we have some time to kind of play around, especially after we're back from our vacation. We still haven't figured out what we're doing for May or the end of May, June kind of area right now. We have some ideas, but we haven't completely come to what what all of that's going to be. But watching Taxi Driver for the first time. I know that's one of our earliest episodes, but it's kind of a strange movie. And yet I appreciate it. And I personally think it's probably Scorsese's best. I know that's somewhat of a controversial opinion, but I still go back to that one. Whether you want to talk about, I loved you and Roger Swapping war stories during Bull Durham as far as baseball and just kind of letting you guys go. Just about every time Rob's been on, he brings a certain energy. I mean, I love the Die Hard episode. This one has been a particular favorite to kind of come back around. I loved the Wedding Crashers episode because I don't think I've ever laughed so hard at one of our episodes, just watching you and our guest kind of go back and forth at how trashy this movie that I've watched so many times is. <laughs> I mean, you want to you want to pick indelible moments, the Bridge Over the River Kwai, where you sang the military song and it's still the first part of that episode. Anytime you load it up, I mean, I, I implore people to watch or not watch, but listen to the first, I don't know, minute of that podcast just by itself. I mean, that's worth it if you've ever seen Bridge Over the River Kwai. So, yeah, there's been a lot of favorite moments. I'm sure there are a lot more to come. There are some great movies that we've discussed, but there are a lot of favorites that we haven't covered yet. We have not touched my favorite director, Christopher Nolan, even though I'm still kind of miffed at (laughs) Tenet. We haven't really covered, other than Iron Man, any of this class of superhero films. We have a lot of different genres that we haven't hit We've barely covered the surface of westerns. We still have a lot of Billy Wilder films to get to. We have a lot of William Wyler films to get to. When you want to talk about George Stevens lists that we could potentially do, you know the the possibilities are still endless as far as what we wanted to do. We've only covered one, or excuse me, two musicals to this point in the show. So we've scratched the surface. I think we've got a good list going as far as the one hundred. Again, Casablanca and The Godfather, not even in the top five at the moment. I think that would have been absolutely shocking when we started this. And yet I'm almost never surprised at this point because I can look at the numbers and see where something finishes. And in this particular episode, it probably could have gotten into the top five of the movies we currently have on the list. But I brought it down with classicness. So and I, I yeah. stand by that. There's a reason. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. At 200, if we get to 200, where do you think we'll be?
2: Uh, looking forward to 300.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure.
2: It's not if, when we get to 200.
0: Oh, there are a lot of things between now and 200. I understand So, I mean, both of the movies that we've happened to do, I've enjoyed those episodes immensely where you've had an illness, but it only takes one thing. I forgot to mention that on favorite episodes. I really enjoyed the Pillow Talk episode with Mom. Okay. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, two middle-class white guys will attempt to appreciate Black History Month with the first of three films celebrating black culture in America, Do the Right Thing. Directed by Spike Lee, starring Spike Lee, Rosie Perez, Giancarlo Esposito, John Turturro, and Samuel L. Jackson. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast, G-M-O-A-T podcast. The greatest movie of all time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.